I had the most magical year going back to school when I was 29 and I had just met the man who would then become my husband and so it was a really exciting time of kind of learning this whole new skill and, yeah. and being good at it yeah. and I think for a long time I hadn't felt that good at something because it hadn't quite worked out with acting and I didn't really want to be a banker so it just felt great to be writing and being creative. You found your calling. I found my calling, mm. exactly. It felt, it fitted. It mm, felt really I. right. I was in my flow, so to speak. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Naomi Kerbel is Global Head of TV and Radio Scheduling at Bloomberg. While studying Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic at Cambridge University, she put her passion for the performing arts to good use as a member of the renowned theatrical club Footlights. A self-confessed compulsive doer, Naomi is also an ambassador for the British Red Cross and host of her own podcast series, Show Me The Way. She was shortlisted for a Woman of the Future Award in 2013 in the media category. So I grew up in the outskirts of London, Twickenham, Kingston, that sort of area. But when I was two, we went to Miami, Florida. My dad got a job over there. And so we relocated and I don't have many memories of that time, but it did inspire me total love of that kind of art deco architecture and bright colours and vibrancy and I came back with an American accent and my grandmother who's no longer with us used to chastise me for saying can I have a glass of water and say no (laughs) Naomi may I have a glass of water. How old were you when you came back? I was four or five so it's only a couple of years. Those are the formative years. It really was yeah when you were listening and parroting back so that was great fun and then I yeah I grew up there And then my dad was very ill when I was younger, so uh, he had kidney failure, which he had diagnosed when he was 18, and it was from a throat infection. It was sort of one in, I don't know, half a million people might get that. And it meant that he dialysed at home, and it wasn't a great environment for me Mm -hmm. to grow up in. Although, you know, I loved being with my family, it was deemed probably better if I went away to school. Now, my parents couldn't afford that, but I managed to get scholarships and bursaries and various things. So from the age of 10, I went to boarding school and it was amazing. I totally loved it. I was one of those stories of people who just adored that time away. Because you do hear stories, the antithesis of that. Of course. I hated going, I didn't want my parents to send me, but you sound like you flourished. I I really did flourish. I was in an idyllic setting on Beachy Head, of all places, in Eastbourne, Mm. um, in Sussex, and I had a lovely three years there. And then, at that stage, my dad had had a kidney transplant, and touch wood, we're now verging on 30 years since that transplant, so he's an absolutely remarkable case. So I could have come home, but I was really enjoying it, and I was actually still an actress then, so I sort of admitted that, but when I was six, I said to my mum, 
that I wanted to be an actress. What did she uh, say really to you? precocious. Did she well, she she never does anything by half. So she found the best acting agency in London, which at the time was a school called Sylvia Young's, which okay. is still going. Alumni like Amy Winehouse and Adele yeah, and yeah, and Billy Piper. Um, so I went there from the age of six, and in fact, my first day it was a Saturday morning class when I was doing like tap and modern or something and Jackie Patton who was one of the big agents there said well actually Naomi there's a an audition at the hall why don't you head up there and see how you get on and it was an audition for Les Mis so I then I was cast in Les Mis and was at the Palace Theatre when I was six so that was 1986 I was actually Eponine there's so oh, the, yeah. yeah. Who's the really little one? Cosette, yeah. yeah. And so um, I did do some Cosette as well because you all kind of. So I was Cosette in the Royal Variety Show in '86. So I met the Queen. This is incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You it was have really... a remarkable singing voice. Um, well, I did. I mean, I I only sing now like nursery rhymes to my daughter, but it's one of those things that I think in life when you have time you can pick these mm. things back up. So it's still there. But it's so you an met inter- the Queen? I met the Queen, yeah, and um, I was really disappointed because she wasn't wearing her jewels. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I did a curtsy, and it was uh, amazing. I mean, I actually found um, a YouTube clip of it recently, and that was, it brought back all the memories. It was incredible. But as I said, so I, was, I then went to boarding school, and I kind of continued with that in school holidays, and my grandma would chaperone me when my mum and dad were working. And that was a really fun experience. It did sort of mean that when I went to my secondary school that I had a bit of a reputation of being a bit precocious, as you would, although I didn't feel I was being precocious, I think that even having, um, having that background makes you stand out. And I think I managed to find some really great friends, but it wasn't... I mean, I fitted in fine because I did a lot of sport, but I, I think that I found ways to adapt, to mm-hmm. get on with people. And I think that's something that boarding school definitely teaches you, how to manage, you know, tricky situations. Yeah, because I guess there's no escape. No, there's no escape you, at all. So you have to almost confront whatever issues yeah, you do. that you're faced with. You do, and I, I think that I, I faced some bullying, but later, sort of sixth form, and... That was really confronting and I remember one particular scenario that was really, it was quite a a kind of sexualised situation with a boy of my age and that was really hard because I didn't want to, I I didn't want to let it go because I thought we're about to go to university and you can't think that this behaviour is normal. Mm. Nothing actually physically happened to me, but I was sort of threatened in a way up against a wall. And it was about me being nice, actually. But it felt quite violent. And because of the way I was being kind of pressed against the wall, it felt quite, it felt quite sexual, right, right. afterwards. You were a and, teenager. Yeah, I was 17, 16, 17, with a boy who was that sort of age. And I just thought, I don't think that this is fair that on other women if he goes off to university and thinks that he can behave like this. So I did talk to somebody, one of my teachers about it, who arranged a meeting between us, a kind of mediation almost, which was probably one of the scariest things I'd ever done, um, probably still have ever done, where you have to kind of confront your, you know, as a victim, you can confront the person who's uh, victimised you. But it was quite liberating, and I think that although he denied it, actually it was it was like early gaslighting he did take it on board i think and uh, and i hope it didn't you know change his 
behaviour in the future. But yes, yeah. th that is something that you do face at boarding school, that you are confronted with these things all the time. I'm sure the very fact that he was in that room with you and there was a mediator would have, if it wasn't visual in that moment, I'm sure he took that away with him. And you would hope, wouldn't you? Yeah, you'd like you say, but you don't want him to get away with it. No. Then why should he? Yeah, yeah. But equally, you don't want a stupid mistake and someone being full of testosterone and bravado mm. and all of those um, hormones rushing around to dictate his whole life because yeah, actually absolutely. I'm sure that incident could have been really dramatic for him. Yeah. So you then went on to... You didn't think the interview was going to go there. <laughs> no, I didn't. This isn't, you know. um, so you then went to uni? Or? Yeah, so I went to uni. Um, I think one thing that characterises me is that I, like my mother, don't do things by half. So uh, I only applied to one university. I applied to Cambridge. My thought behind that was, I'm just going to go for this one for the first year. Mm. If I don't get in, I'll have a gap here and I'll think through what I want to do with my life. So you did have a plan B? Vaguely, but I just, sense, I totally yeah. believed that I would get in. Now, I totally believed I could get in because I think a bit like being an actor, you have to totally believe there are no other options. Right. So you... So you'd learn that skill. So I'd learn that yeah. skill of like, you know, you trust... And I'm a really spiritual person. I'm half Catholic, half Jewish. So I have a really strong faith in God. Mm. And so I really trusted that if I had, if that dream had been placed in my heart, it was something that I could fulfill. Yeah. And I was also really strategic. So I applied for a course that only had about 15 places, but had a lot less applicants than, say, English or French and Italian, which were my other options. Oh, I think it was like Nordic. Or yes, Anglo-Saxon, yeah. Norse, and Celtic. Yeah. So um, that's I, very different. It was really different, and that, you know, it, it wasn't an easy course to get into. The interviews were as tough as you would imagine. I'd done French, English, and Latin for A level, so it was well set mm. for me. The history I found particularly tricky. I'd never been good with numbers and dates, mm. but uh, I loved it. I really, really loved it. In my first year, I did the footlights and went up to Edinburgh, and that was an incredible experience. Met some wonderful people, really great friends. So yeah, that was my time at university. That sounds brilliant. Mm. So then what set you off on your career trajectory? Yeah, well, um, I thought I was going to be a famous comedy actress, to be honest. Okay. And still um, still Yeah, well, no, I don't think I want that anymore. But I mean, there are elements of it that I still hanker after a bit. Certainly the applause and the people laughing at you. I really enjoyed people <laughs> laughing at me. When I was doing Footlights, I did something called clowning, which mm. is um, a form of comedy. I always played this kind of stupid one. And that's great fun because you're really liberated in that role. But your daughter loves that now. Yeah, she does. We have a lot of fun yeah. together. I mean, she is a real comedian. She's only two and a half, but she definitely shows um, potential. Uh, potential. <laughs> yeah, definite potential, if not desire. Yeah. So, no, I left university really believing that it would work out for me. And to a certain extent, it did. I think if I'd have stuck at it, I would have been a good jobbing actress. But that in itself is a really hard path to mm. tread. It's not easy to be a good jobbing actress. It takes a lot of tenacity. And there are lots of bits in between. I was at an event recently where we were talking about men and in the creative arts and suicide. 
And one guy was talking about the fact that his last job was in May and he won't work again until December. But there have been, and that's quite regular work, but there have been times in his life where he hasn't worked for two to three years. And you think about the toll that takes on your mental health and not just that, but your status. Exactly. When we live in a capitalist society that demands that your worth is characterised by how much you earn, especially Mm -hmm. coming from a university like Cambridge. But it's one of the first things we ask people is like, what do you do? Mm. And if you say, I'm an actor, you can say, obviously you can say I'm an actor, but then immediately someone will say, what was the last thing that you... Yeah, so it's what are you working on? Oh. Yeah, it is, maybe it's a British thing and that's how our social chats, that's how it evolves. We can yeah. literally just ask that question. Well, it, I mean, oh. it's better than the American, how much do you earn? I think really? that's, so yeah, I think, really well, but I think, um, I think it's a good question to ask. I think it's a question that we should all be asking each other and be freely open to. Mm. Um, I know, you know, we sign contracts with companies. Certainly with my company, I wouldn't do that. But I think we do need to be talking about salary ranges a lot more. Yeah, I agree. Because people just don't. And they just assume what other people are earning, which is worse, in a sense. Because you need to get it completely wrong. And actually, the BBC having to reveal pay has been a great thing for the industry, the media industry as a whole, because people can finally go, oh, right, I get it. Okay, that's how much that person earns. And therefore, that's what I can aim towards. Or Makes it tangible. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So is there a moment or a person that you would say gave you your big break? Um, My big break? I mean, I think my journey pivoted in 2006 when I realised that I wasn't going to be an actress anymore. I'd started temping in the city and I was earning okay money, but I couldn't earn like the bonuses and stuff like that because I was only a temp. And my friend gave me, you know, my best friend from Cambridge gave me that break right. and said, come along and do this. And I, and I really enjoyed that time. But in 2009, the financial crisis happened and I found myself out of that job. And although actually just a few months later, I was called back again and asked if I wanted to do something similar again within that company, Mm. I'd already made this decision to move into journalism. I'd always been interested in storytelling throughout my whole kind of creative life. But at that stage, I thought I wanted to be a presenter. And I went to see uh, Jeremy Vine. Did you? And he was such a lovely, lovely man. How did that come about? Because you can't just Jeremy Vine. <laughs> well, well do you know, sort of you can, because I just sent him an email, it was quite easy to figure out his email. Yeah, jeremy.vine. Jeremy.vine, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's very easy to find mm-hmm. out, and he was just so kind, and sent me, he clearly had got these requests many, many times before, mm. and sent me a bit of blurb that he'd put into a Word document about, you know, what it really takes to be a journalist, okay. or an on-air broadcast journalist, so I did these were kind of words that I had never come across before. I didn't know how to even break into this industry. I didn't really know that people who did the, who well, that, who this was an option. Yeah, yeah. well, that the people who were presenters were journalists. I didn't mm. at that stage. I had no idea. So, I went and shadowed him for a day, and he was just so charming and made it all seem possible and told me about how most people do it, which is to do um, what I almost called a conversion, like you would do for law, mm. but you do a master's in or postgraduate diploma in journalism so I decided to do that and I did it at what was previously called the London College of Printing and is now the University of Arts London, London College of Communication in Elephant and I had the most 
magical year, going back to school when I was 29, and I had just met the man who would then become my husband. And so it was a really exciting time of kind of learning this whole new skill and, yeah. and being good at it. Yeah. And I think for a long time I hadn't felt that good at something because it hadn't quite worked out with acting and I didn't really want to be a banker. So it just felt great to be writing and being creative. So you found your calling? I found my calling, mm. exactly. It felt, it fitted. It mm, felt really high. right. I was in my flow, so to speak. So then I, um, I left and I, in fact, I had a job before I left and I worked for CNBC for a year because one of the things that sort of upset me but I understood was I did an internship at Sky News where I eventually ended up for nearly five years and they said to me, they gave me the best career advice I'd ever had which was, you may want to escape the ghetto of finance but your CV reads like a financial journalist. Right. So we would suggest that you think about joining the business team. So I went to CNBC. I then, uh, there were no opportunities at Sky at that point in 2010. And in 2011, a spot opened up and I became business news editor for Sky. After a while, you know, I worked on the Jeff Randall program, who was at the Telegraph for years. Mm -hmm. I then got promoted to business news editor and I then got headhunted to move over to Bloomberg which is where I am now. So that happened four and a half years ago. That's all very exciting. Yeah. What happens is it sounds, so when you read it off like that, it sounds like it happened really quickly, but I'm sure there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears that went into all of that. There was a lot. I mean, there was, um, there's a lot of time when you're in it where you think, I don't know what the hell I'm doing here. It's life in general you know, sometimes. Yeah, I remember walking to work in the city in floods of tears, going, this is not what my life was meant to be. Mm. But... I think that Tim Cook gave a really great speech at a graduation ceremony, I think, for Harvard, where he talks about the dots, joining the dots in your life. And you can never join the dots in a forward way. It's always retrospective. So I tell this story, my story, like it's a continuous flow that makes total sense. But at the time, I could just follow my instinct and it felt right Mm. in that moment. And the same thing, I have a podcast as well, and that was also very instinctive. When I had my little girl, I was on maternity leave, and I really felt that I needed to have an outlet. And I'd been mulling a podcast for a long time. I wanted to hear more of women's stories. That's exactly what you're doing now, which is amazing. So I'm really pleased that that's happening in force now. But at the time, I wanted to hear how other women had done it. That gave me an outlet, and, and so that's what I've been doing for a couple of years now as well. So how did you first hear about the Woman of the Future program? Oh, well, um, I think it was a simple Google search. I think it might have shown up. And what were you I searching think it's for? a long time ago. That's a really good question. How did I hear about it? It feels like it's like part of my DNA now, <laughs> and it became a, a, it's become a big part of my kind of equality story okay. and about what I really want to see in the world, and Pinky's formed a big part of that. So I can't quite remember. But you, you won an award. I, yeah, well, I was shortlisted, um, which I think in Women of the Future terms is as good because yeah, it's what you do with it. 
I was in the same category that year as Emma Barnett, who's gone on to um, Five Live, Five Live Newsnight, uh, Women's Hour. She's just written a book, period, which um, I urge listeners to, to read. It's really important. It was an amazing year. And actually, what Pinky has done with the kind of kindness aspect of the Women of the Future Awards and the network she's created has been a massive benefit to me in my mm-hmm. career. When I made the transition from one job to another, in fact, it was by having that seal of approval of the Women of the Future shortlisting that enabled me or empowered me to ask for a lot more money when I went into my new job. So I think that is a very important part of what this gives you. Yeah. Just gives you a little bit of, it gives you a bit of a um, wind beneath your wings. Self-belief. Yeah, it does. Some quick fire questions. Oh, good Lord, okay. They're quite loaded, so... Okay, God. <laughs> what would you describe as your greatest success? Having my baby. Emmeline, as in uh, Pankhurst. Yeah, she's uh, remarkable. I think of my course. daughter's the same age. I've got a little girl called Florence. Oh, gorgeous yeah. name, two and a half. Yeah. Oh. She's neither, well, she's three in October. Okay, so getting, yeah. Getting same school year. Yeah, such a character. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And you see little bits of yourself and you think, oh, do I like that bit? <laughs> I know exactly yeah. what you mean. <laughs> and your greatest failure? My greatest failure. Oh, God, I'm one of these really annoying people that kind of views failure as, you know. It's a tough word. Every yeah, time I ask someone, um, it's a challenge. Oh, general studies A level. <laughs> really, really bad at that. Yeah, same. <laughs> what was, what the, was point? the point of that? The time I did it was all about economics and things like that, and I was like, well, I wanted to do economics. Yeah, I would have, that would have been yeah. useful for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, right. So the mantra of the women of the future is kindness and collaboration. What does that mean to you? I think for me, it's making time for other people and being present in that time, no matter how short that is, and as much as possible connecting people you know I think Pinky is amazing at that mm. um, just seeing the connections and seeing the possibilities well before you can even see them yourself Is there anything that scares you? Getting sick I do too much always it's my natural personality to overload myself mm. yesterday I wanted to get a workout in before I got home because I knew by the time I got home I wouldn't have any time because I had to do bed part time and bath time and so I did a 20 minute workout in the disabled loo at, at work <laughs> I Are kid you, you not serious? yeah I'm totally serious oh my goodness. Um, I've been in work at 3am I was in work at 3am on Monday uh, I took a conference call at 5am this morning you know I think I say my default is yes and I, maybe this is my failure. I wish I could get better at saying no with kindness and collaboration. <laughs> What's left on your to-do list? I want to do more on TV. And, you know, you asked me about the comedy side of things. I think there is a place for a kind of news review show, a bit like the day-to-day was in mm. the 90s, which is comedy but with an edge. So I, you know, in, in the future, maybe that's, that's where I'll be. Not in the immediate future, but I'd like another baby. That's not really a to-do list. I view that too much as a... a, 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 a I, very big thing. <laughs> yeah, and I think that I think of those things in terms of achievements and failures, and that's something I'm working on. It's been brilliant speaking to you. Thank oh, you for your Thank time. you so much, for, for it. It's lovely to chat to you.
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.